This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobus, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Audrey Waters, author of the book Teaching Machines, The History of Personalized Learning. Audrey, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Uh, I'm a writer. I write about education, education technology. I'm known as EdTech's Cassandra, which I did not choose that name for myself. People who are familiar with uh, the mythological um, (laughs) figure would probably understand why. But, um, you know, I tend to I tend to look around at EdTech today and say, folks, this um, this doesn't look great. I I guess I would say I do prophesize a lot of a lot of doom when it when it comes to ed tech. And unfortunately, much like Cassandra herself, I'm rarely listened to. I think there's so much exuberance about what ed tech can do. And I like to think of myself as the person who offers a more cautionary look at what ed tech actually can do. That I have to say is one of the things I valued most about reading your book was not just, it was it was I mean there's definitely a cautionary element to it but most importantly was the context which you know for reading it it was it's surprising how so much of the context is completely absent from the debate today over ed tech what was it that led you to uh, write a book about the history of using machinery to teach children. I've been, I'm really interested in history in general, I would say, and I'm always fascinated about how we got here. And I think one of the markers of our particular technological culture um, is this sort of rejection of history. I talk a lot in the book and in my other work about edtech amnesia. And I think it's actually almost purposefully cultivated this idea that not only do we not know about the past, but we kind of even reject the idea of knowing about the past. This is really common, I think, among Silicon Valley entrepreneurs in particular, who like to kind of espouse the notion that because they're wildly ignorant about a subject, um, and I don't think that's entirely hyperbolic, um, but because they're so ignorant that somehow that makes them more innovative and better able to tackle problems. And sometimes that they're they act as though they're the first people to have even noticed that there are that there are problems, and so I'm really interested in sort of how we how we got to this particular moment in in ed tech, and I wanted to tell a different kind of story, one that wasn't simply about the the technology itself, 
I wanted to talk about the people and I wanted to talk about um, the people before computers. Cause I think that that's also really important. You uh, begin your book in the early 20th century and you talk about some of the early technologies that were seeking to, uh, you know, to, to change the way that people were taught. And, and you, do, you do so as well by putting it in the context of what was happening in education more generally during that point in American history. I was wondering if you could start us off by talking a bit about what was going on in education generally, and then perhaps introducing us to Sidney Pressy and how he was proposing to change the way that education was being done back then. Dear Sydney Pressy, um, <laughs> you know, one of the stories that we tell about education, and you'll hear this from everybody from secretaries of education to sort of the common sort of man on the street, if you will, is that education hasn't changed in hundreds, sometimes people even say thousands of years, that we're still doing things exactly how we always have been, and hence that's why we need new technologies. And I think it's important to recognize that education, the history of education in the U.S., there has been quite a significant change, um, but not necessarily in the ways that people are expecting. But I think at the beginning of the 20th century, a lot of things were happening in this country that made that made people think more about education. After all, public education wasn't that old, you know, and that not not everybody was attending school. I mean, people would go to grade school, but it was actually not very common for people to continue on into middle, what we know of now as middle school or high school, let alone into college. But beginning in the early 20th century, people did, that. there were pushes to get, um, to have people complete high school. And so suddenly we saw more students enrolled in high school. And that meant different kinds of students rather than just um, the economic elite or uh, or people who had specific professional goals in mind, we had an obligation to educate everybody. And that meant also, well, I'll put a little asterisk by everybody, everybody, but that meant at the time, a lot of immigrants as well. So there were a lot of pressures on the school, on schools to figure out what it meant to offer a standardized education for all Americans, asterisks all. I think it's important to recognize that the experience of African-Americans was, was very different. But there were concerns, of course, if we're going to standardize education for everybody, what happens to individualism? And interestingly, I think this is some of the same discussions that we have today. And that's sort of an undercurrent of my book is a lot of the things that we talk about today, a lot of the panic we have about education, these are actually quite long-running concerns that we've had. But this idea, if, if education is standardized, how do we individualize? How do we personalize education? And that's where a lot of these ideas about mechanization came from. Um, and of course, in the early 20th century, that was also the rise of standardized testing, as well. And Sidney Pressy, who was an educational psychologist, a professor at Ohio State University, had the sort of brilliant idea that if we could, um, if we could build machines that would both test and teach students, then we would have a better idea of students' capabilities. And we could, in fact, 
individualize their education for them. And so Sidney Pressy uh, built a, he uh, was a tinkerer himself, and uh, he built a prototype of a teaching machine out of old typewriter parts um, in which you could offer a student, a student would be posed a question, a multiple choice question, and they would push a button. And if they got the question right, um, it would move on to the next question. He, there was another, uh, an addition you could add to it that if they got the question right, it would offer them a candy. Um, that sort of great incentive to, <laughs> for children to learn. <laughs> Um, I like the, but I say I like the connection that you made in the book there between what he's doing and Pavlov because it yeah. sounds so Pavlovian. And you it's know, you so rang the bell. Pavlovian. Here's the treat. Yes, and I think it, you know this is you know at the time behaviorism was the dominant sort of um, theory in in psychology and educational psychology. This was how this was how people imagined or people theorized that that everyone uh, dogs and 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 humans learned. So Sidney Pressy uh, got some great reception to his, his machine. His machine. Uh, he tried to commercialize it, but unfortunately he ran into um, a little historical event called the Great Depression, and it, he really struggled. Um, Dear Sidney struggled um, sort of valiantly to try to take this machine to market. But of course, you know, during during the Great Depression, uh, no one was really interested in either replacing teachers with the machines or, um, or actually schools, schools couldn't afford them. They were incredibly expensive. Again, echoes today. How, you know, how can we possibly afford, how can we possibly afford technology? Um, we've got to, we've got to continue to employ, employ teachers. So Sydney eventually failed, I think, to, to, to bring his machine to market successfully, but he really was and is still seen as sort of the inventor of this idea of using a machine for automating teaching and automating testing as well. One of the things you do when you talk about the story of Sidney Pressey that I really liked was you point out that this is not simply a binary dynamic. We're not just simply talking about an inventor with the technology and the classroom that it's a lot more complex, that you have factors of, uh, of you know, capitalism involved, you're talking about uh, business interests, you're talking about the, the uh, manufacturing dynamic where, uh, I was keep thinking about the, the, the letters that Pressy was sending out where he wanted to change this and change that. And, 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 they, were, and they were concerned about the fact that, you know, this would in, involve even more expensive, would take this already expensive device and make it even more uh, in, in, uh, unattainable for school districts. There's so many interesting challenges to me there. And I think that this is, you know, often how we, we talk about technology. There's a, there's a book by the editor of Wired called What Technology Wants. And I think we often talk about the history of technology as though technology is kind of the driver and it just sort of moves forward of its own volition. And of course, things are so much more complicated than that. And in education, when we talk about technology, we often talk about teachers as being the resistors and um, everyone else wants technology in the classroom, but somehow teachers are the ones who are sort of standing in the way of technological progress. And I wanted to show that these are always, not just in the 1920s and 30s, but these are always much more complicated. And this question as well, you know, Sidney Pressey was a scientist. He thought that there was a appropriate, proper scientific way to build to build a teaching machine. 
And the company that he worked with wasn't as interested in the science as they were in, you know, um, obviously making money. And this, this conflict between are we able to have technologies in the classroom that quote unquote work uh, scientifically, that we have research that shows that, that we can demonstrate that these are effective and are those the technologies that actually get manufactured? Because are those the technologies that someone, a corporation decides, yeah, we can, we can make that and, and turn a profit. And certainly, I think that you know, by telling a more comp- a nuanced story, you can see that it's, it's much more than just the teacher said no, or the stock market crashed and it didn't work. Uh, there, were, there were a lot of things going on. And I think nothing better illustrates that in your book than your chapter where you're talking about uh, Reynolds Johnson and Ben Wood and IBM. I was wondering if you could explain that because that's where you started to talk about technology that, that you know, Pressy is sort of a, a key figure in terms of trying to uh, mechanize teaching. But uh, you have this uh, new approach coming in initially with Ben Wood. And then you have this uh, surprisingly sustained effort in the 1930s by this major uh, industrial concern to uh, make this a, uh, a marketable technology. Ben Wood, ben Wood is a really interesting figure to me, and he's not somebody that people in education uh, history often talk about. Um, he, I went to the archives at the Educational Testing Service in New Jersey, which is perhaps best known for the, the GRE or the, the TOEFL exam. Um, and he was a early, um, an early uh, uh, founder of, of that. But he was really interested in educational testing. And as such, he was really sort of, he was one of these proponents who said the, the way in which we're going to understand students better, the way in which we're going to be able to personalize education is to mechanize it, and not not in a standardized way, but we'll, we'll mechanize it through through testing, um, through all sorts of testing. He had a vision. Again, sounds very familiar to, to to today. If we can just gather enough data about students, we'll be able to understand them and um, individualize their education. And for Ben Wood, that meant, of course, uh, intelligence testing, aptitude testing, achievement testing personality testing but that required a lot of a lot of computational time with humans with humans actually grading the standardized tests um, he actually um, I think had his his wife um, help do a lot of the the actual number crunching of the standardized tests the early standardized tests that he administered in Pennsylvania and in New York and he thought he thought what if I could get a uh, a, a, a business um, to help contribute a ca- some calculation, a ca- uh, some calculators for me, computational machinery. And he sent out a bunch of letters saying, I'm doing standardized testing. I would like some help crunching numbers. And none of the corporations were interested except for this one company known as the International Business Machines, um, IBM, that actually were interested. They donated a computational machine to Ben Wood's research facility at Columbia, and uh, Ben Wood and and um, and Thomas Watson, the the president of IBM, actually developed a long long relationship. And Ben Wood realized that with the power of computational machines, you could actually grade tests a lot quicker, and that was sort of the holdup. 
And so they were looking, IBM was looking for a way to be able to automate test grading. And it's important, I think, to recognize that connection between testing machines and teaching machines. It happened early in the 1920s and 30s. But when we look even at ed tech today, we can really see the connection between standardized testing, both the goals of standardized testing, but also the, the, the mode in which it works, the multiple choice test. We can see the way in which that still exists today. It has been quite literally hard-coded into our practices. Uh, Reynold Johnson was a, was a teacher um, who devised a way to, to have a, built a machine that would pick up on the pencil lead and be able to, the machine could sense the pencil lead. We all know these. We've, we've, <laughs> we've, we've I guess maybe not so much anymore. Um, but, you know, people of a certain age are familiar with the number two pencil and coloring little circles. Um, and those can be fed into a machine in order to, you know, automatically um, grade, your, grade your test. And this was an invention of uh, Reynold Johnson, who was, after some time, hired by IBM. He actually had a very long career at IBM as an inventor. Um, but this idea of being able to automate automate testing um, was really important to, to the development of educational psychology, um, but also the development of educational technology. Can we automate grading? Can we automate assessment? And then how does that connect to the kinds of things that we do when we are building machines that teach? One of the figures who really looms large in your book is B.F. Skinner. And I was wondering if you could explain a bit about who he is and how it is that he gets involved in this question of uh, automating teaching and how he comes to be such a large figure in the effort to do so after World War II. B.F. Skinner, uh, Skinner is a huge figure. I would say he is, perhaps with the exception of Sigmund Freud, um, probably the most famous figure in psychology. I think that a lot of people, even if you've never taken a psychology class in college, even if you aren't familiar with psychology, probably know the name of B.F. Skinner, know a little bit, or have a, perhaps a stereotypical view of the kinds of things that Skinner did with operant conditioning, uh, his work with pigeons, for example, uh, being able to offer people or, and offer pigeons rewards in order to train them to do certain behaviors. And B.F. Skinner in the mid-20th century was probably one of the best-known public intellectuals. Uh, he was on the cover of magazines. He was in the newspaper. He was on television. He was, you know, he would be one of the guests on, on talk shows, for example. This was a very, very well-known individual. And one of the things that Skinner, one of the many projects that Skinner worked on was the development of the teaching machine. His name is probably most closely associated with teaching machines. Uh, Skinner had a story that I think if he were alive today, would have he would present as a TED Talk. And it's just the story that he told and gets told time and time again about how he had this aha moment for why it was necessary to mechanize education. He visited his daughter's fourth grade class one day. The students were in a math lesson. And he observed 
the students sort of working. And he noticed that some students made it through the math lesson very quickly and then were bored. And some students really struggled and they fidgeted around and were distracted. And the teacher did her best walking up and down the aisle, helping students when she could. Um, And then at the end of the math lesson, she collected everyone's papers, took them home, and then the idea was that she would grade them and bring them back the next day. And, And for Skinner, this violated all of the principles that he believed in for how learning best happens. And, and for Skinner, this was immediate positive behavioral reinforcement. He said, there's no way that when you get a paper back the next day, your grade back the next day, whether you've got an A or an F, you don't, you're not going to learn from that because it's not an immediate reinforcement of what you've just done. And he thought that, you know, this was, it would require students, he thought there had to be a way that students could, if they were doing well, could move forward at their own pace. Again, moving at their own pace is something we hear a lot about today um, in education technology. And so he went home, he built a little box out of wood, um, a prototype of a teaching machine in which students would have, a student would have a, a math question. And if they got the question right, they could reveal the reveal the answer. If they got the question right, it would immediately move them on to the next question. A little side note that the reward for Skinner, unlike Pressy, who actually offered a, you know, a child a piece of candy, the reward for Skinner was you get to move on to the next question. I think we might debate whether or not that's actually <laughs> a reward in math class. Yay! I get to take the next the next question. But this was this was sort of Skinner's basic idea. And again, he, you know, he he was he really thought that this was the sort of the way in which we would transform American education. That we that rather than students sort of in a classroom all together waiting for the teacher to move on, that they would be able to move at their own pace through lessons and that students who struggled wouldn't be punished. Um that by, by getting lost or being left behind, that they would have an opportunity to work to work at, at um, to work at their own pace at their at the precise level they were at. And so much like Sidney Pressey, Skinner worked very hard to try to bring this idea to market, to try to commercialize the teaching machine. I, I just keep thinking back to how familiar all that sounds, that students can move at their own pace, that instruction is individualized. And you point out in your book how that's always how they're presenting it, is that this is going to make the, the teacher's job easier, that, that that teachers are going to be freed from a lot of the drudgery. It's, it's almost like the, the idea that if you make it an industrial line process, then, then people are free to do uh, more creative things and, and be uh, more effective as people rather than be themselves being reduced to machines. And you point out time and again that how that conflicts with a lot of the other concerns about how this is about, you know, effectively, you know, turning, uh, you know, the, the entire educational process into a, a very uh, industrialized and mechanized one in which a lot of that that element of, of humanity is lost. Yes, one of my favorite things I discovered were, were students actually at Ohio State University responding to uh, Professor Pressey's invention saying, wait a minute, like, it doesn't matter if you automate the, t- the testing, this is actually drudgery for us as students. <laughs> you know, we would like to invent a test taking machine. If you're going to automate the, the grading of tests, how about we 
automate the taking of tests. I mean, I think that that's that's this, this is this thing that I think a lot of these inventors and still today, you know, sort of haven't got their heads around that it's actually not particularly exciting to move move through lessons at this kind of incremental step by step way. I actually, when I was researching the book, I thought I should I should t- try this for myself. I want to experience. Um, what one of these machines were like. I, I was, you know, very curious. And of course, if you go on eBay, you can, you know, you can find all sorts of very, I mean, I could spend a ton of money. You can find all sorts of very cool old devices. And I, I bought, um, I bought a, a teaching machine that was sold by a company called TMI Inc, Teaching Machines Inc. I bought a little plastic teaching machine and a packet of introduction to electricity. And it was so dull uh, because <laughs> the, the, the sort of the idea of Skinner and of programmed instruction, which is eventually the sort of this practice that developed out of this was that you reduce because you want to minimize mistakes, right? You only want positive reinforcement. So you reduce everything down to the sort of smallest little learning object, the little smallest nugget of knowledge, and then move students very slowly step-by-step step forward so that they're never making a mistake, so that there's only positive reinforcement. And I got to tell you, that's boring. Um, or at least it's very tedious is probably the, you know. And so I, you know, I was, I worked my way through, I think, a page and a half of introduction to electricity and thought, whew, <laughs> there's no way there's, you know, I mean, I don't even know if a candy dropping out of the side would have been <laughs> to, to complete it. But I think that that's, you know, that that this idea that these machines, re, you know, eliminate drudgery for the teacher or for the student, I just don't think that that's particular that's shown to be the case. And it's interesting when you look at the kinds of things that students are assigned to do today, there's a, you know, on the iPad or the computer, they're very similar. It's, there's a lot of bells and whistles, a lot of animation that happens when you get a question right. But it's at the same time, it's still very, it's still a lot of drudgery for students to work their way through these worksheets, whether they're digital or whether they're scrolling, you're scrolling through paper on a, on a teaching machine. It, you also uh, highlight something else in the book, which is, uh, uh, I think, very interesting, which is how when these, you have these incredibly smart people, I mean, n- nobody's going to doubt, you know, people like, you know, uh, Wood and 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 uh, Johnson and 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 Skinner as, as you know not having brain power, uh, they definitely do. But when they develop these processes, they have a great idea, and you describe how time and again they put it together and they work with these other smart people, and you never really hear a lot about as, at at a point when they're you know proposing the idea or 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 working on the idea that they bring in teachers or that they or that they consult students beyond just piloting it with them to make sure that it's working and, and, and has the desired uh you know result out of the machine itself. This is so true. The 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 this is I mean this is and actually I think that when students are imagined as being uh, uh, both students and teachers are sort of imagined as not having any sort of agency or input. I think that that's you know, again, the way in which we tell the story of technology as though the technology just builds upon itself and it happens to students, it happens to teachers, but they aren't agents in the, in the construction of it. And I think that that's, that's a particular way of thinking about education, thinking about teaching and learning, 
that in the 60s, I think folks really started to uh, resist quite vocally and develop a, a very fully articulated vision of an alternative to this sort of standardized, mechanized vision. And it was one in which students students were seen as being creators of and part of a community and scholars themselves and wanting to develop their own ideas and not just be programmed. I mean, and that, that is, you know, programmed instruction, teaching machines, you can sort of, you, it's, I think perhaps it's easier for us to sort of see in that the kind of standardization, the kind of engineering um, that these folks had in mind. But I think that it's, it's still very much the kind of engineering that, that people today that, that entrepreneurs, ed tech entrepreneurs have in mind today. You know, Mark Zuckerberg talks about personalized learning that I don't, I don't think that it's a practice of freedom, which is something that in the 60s students were um, starting to really articulate, that they wanted their educational experience to be a, a, a practice of freedom and agency. And of course, that's antithetical to B.F. Skinner's ideas as, as he developed them at, along the same time. And as you describe in the book, uh, Skinner also benefited from a development, which of course he couldn't foresee, which is this massive focus you have nationally on education in uh, the late 1950s, especially with Sputnik, that all of a sudden you have this existential uh, anxiety about America falling behind and how we need to do more about education. And it, it, it struck me that, that uh, while Skinner's working on this on this three, four years before uh, Sputnik takes off, that nonetheless, he really does catch this wave where all of a sudden there's this you know, that there's this desire to improve education, to spend a lot of money on it. And he's right there. It, you know, n- nobody's really thinking about Pressy anymore or IBM's efforts. They're now thinking about what, what this, you know, this leading public intellectual has already been working on and how this is going to solve the problem and allow America to, to get, catch up again. Yes, I think, you know, post, post-World post War II America, Cold War America was also, was really committed to gadgetry. And I think that that's one of the things that for me makes Skinner also quite interesting, not just the teaching machines, but some of his, some of his other inventions that I, that I explore in the, in the book as well. Um, you know, but this, this question of, do we really want to gadgetize? Do we want to gadgetize our, our future? Gadgetize, I don't know if that's a word. Um, but I think that there was a real push particularly after Sputnik, to do that to education. To, and we saw, we saw, you know, science, technology, math as being, and, and foreign languages as being the areas that American students really were falling behind their, their, their Soviet peers. Um, whether that's true or not, that was certainly the, the story that we were telling. And a lot of money went into education technology, teaching machines, but also this was a time in, of an expansion of the use of film in schools, for example, and, and television. We were, um, and, the, and the development, the early development, I think, of, of computers as well. We were, we were absolutely committed to education becoming this more technological endeavor. And, and Skinner was absolutely there to to, to, to try to, con- you know, to convince people that that's what the future was going to look like. There were a lot of, a lot of sort of sci-fi visions and not necessarily, you know, fiction per se, but a lot of visions of the future in that period in which we were certain that, that education was going to be very sort of Jetsons looking robot, robot teachers 
and students interacting with machinery versus being in a classroom. I was wondering if you could perhaps describe some of the uh, efforts that were taking place during this period. Like, it, to uh, what exactly were the how were they trying to turn Skinner's approach into reality? And what were some of the uh, efforts they they tried uh, to implement to pilot this? And uh, what ultimately caused those efforts to come to an end? So Skinner himself, much like Sidney Pressey, was wildly unsuccessful at actually having a commercial success, which is so, it's so fascinating because he was the best known individual, um, you know, the name most closely associated with this, but he was, um, he was really adamant about the proper use of behaviorism, the proper development of the machines. And a lot like Pressy, I think, struggled, struggled to uh, communicate that effectively with, with the corp, with the company that he worked with. That said, a lot of other people, many of whom were Skinner students or uh, actually his students or people that he'd worked with were less committed to this, you know, to being, or less strict about, you know, what the machines had to look like, what, how they would function. And they were, uh, they were much more successful at getting things to market. One of which was the company that I bought my machine, Teaching Machines Inc. They, they worked with, um, encyclopedia, with, uh, encyclopedia companies, for example, that were quite popular in the sixties going door to door, um, selling, peddling sets of encyclopedias. If you bought a set of encyclopedias, they'd throw in a teaching machine as well. So we saw th- we saw a lot in in that period of at home use, right? And so this might be someone learning like I did, well, like I tried, introduction to electricity. You know, take a at home course with a teaching machine on electricity and join this growing new profession, technological uh, profession. A lot of stuff in the back of popular mechanics um, selling people courses to be taken at home uh, via teaching machines. Again, very familiar, very familiar stuff with what we have today. Um, but there were pilot programs in schools. There were schools that 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 adopted teaching machines. Um, the best known was in Roanoke, um, in Virginia. The they tried they. They tried to do it sort of, uh, they had a, a pilot program in which at first one class and then a, a whole grade would um, ha- would use the teaching machines in lieu of, in lieu of having a traditional algebra class. And at first, I think, and this, this is quite common, uh, at first the students liked it. They, parents were a little concerned. There was no homework. The students moved at their own pace. Um, the teachers didn't. The teachers only intervened if students uh, asked for help. But the Roanoke, but Roanoke, Virginia, was sort of the best known, and I think if you look at the the media coverage, really the one that most newspapers touted when they said, "Teaching machines are the future." And here's our one example. <laughs> here's our one example. <laughs> again and again, it would be, and they're doing it in Roanoke, therefore, it must be great. Um, so that was that's really the the place that um, that that most folks, including Skinner, Skinner was very pleased. He visited uh, he visited the schools at Roanoke, saw them using the the teaching machines. They weren't using the ones that he were trying to he tried to develop. But he was still very pleased with 
with the with the pilot program in in Roanoke. But you know, I think, and this this is again, I, I as I was writing the book, I had I wanted to write at the end of almost every paragraph, and this is exactly what it's like today. <laughs> you know, I think that after a while, sort of the newness of these technologies kind of wears off. People start asking more questions. It's less exciting to be the cutting edge school that's trying these things. Um, you know, I think that it, this, the, it became, it, it just didn't really pan out. I think the way in which they wanted, of course, computers were on the horizon. It was expensive. It was still incredibly expensive to, to buy a, to buy a teaching machine for every student. And then of course you had to buy, these were paper-based. So you had to buy the, the packets, the, the worksheet packets that went in with them. So some school districts, in, in fact, Roanoke itself said, you know, we're not going to use the machine. We're just going to use these workbook packets. And I think that many people sort of um, in, who went to school in the 70s and, uh, and early 80s are probably really familiar with programmed instruction. We just didn't use the teaching machine. But we use the very similar kinds of, of packets that were meant to be sort of a personalized learning experience that you moved through your own moved at your own pace through reading packets or through math packets rather than the sort of whole classroom instruction. So my argument is that you know teaching machines they didn't just sort of die out. They didn't just go away per se. They actually became part of this other practice. And as computers were developed in the 1960s, the early educational software that was developed for computers was absolutely based on these kind of Skinnerist Skinnerist principles. And still today, much of what we see in, in, in software, in educational software, looks a lot like the kinds of things that students were doing in the sixties, that the animation is better, (laughs) (laughs) but, but really the principles behind the, the principles of programmed instruction, these sort of small units of content, moving students slowly to sort of maximize their success. That's absolutely still with us. And yet, as you described, it's not a, 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 you know, a, a single uh, trajectory it's, it's un- that's unbroken, that you, as you've already alluded to, uh, in the late 1960s, you start to see a backlash against a lot of the ideas that are underlying uh, Skinner's behavioralist approach, that there is a sense that, uh, you know, uh, that, you know, the regimentation is, is uh, something that is actually to be you know, uh, opposed, you start seeing that opposition. Uh, is to to what degree is uh, it being triggered by a lot of this educational technology, and to what degree is it more of a reflection of the more general uh, backlash or turning away from just the whole idea of behavioralism in 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 psychological thought and in educational psychology in particular? I would say it's a little little column A, a little column B. I mean, I, you know, I I think that there were, you know, Skinner, like I said, Skinner was such a well-known figure. And the, the trajectory of Skinner's own career, I think, took a little bit of a different turn um, when he published his book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, um, in which he specifically argued against the idea of freedom, against the idea of dignity. And so this was in some ways... Uh, for a lot of people, I think this was sort of the um, the final str- the, the final straw 
for seeing Skinner as as being uh, a positive figure. And I think today, when you mention Skinner's name, a lot of people have a very negative um, a very negative opinion of of, of Skinner, um, which whether they've read any of his material or not. Interestingly, a lot of folks, I think, I mean, if you read, if you take a psychology class, for example you know, the way in which the, the chapters are, or the history is organized, it's very clear that sort of we've moved, we had psychoanalysis and then we moved to behaviorism or, you know, positivism and then behaviorism. And then we've moved beyond behaviorism to, you know, cognitive science. I would argue that we haven't really necessarily left behaviorism behind, particularly not in educational psychology. I think behaviorism is very strong, and I think it's very strong in technology. But the but amongst the po- with the popular view, Skinner definitely fell out of favor. Um, the you know the the most folks I think were familiar with even if they hadn't read Skinner's work, they were pretty familiar with a movie called Clockwork Orange, which came out <laughs> as Beyond Freedom and Dignity, and made a very convincing case as to why this kind of behavioral engineering that Skinner really touted was dangerous, shall we say. <laughs> it coincided, you know, it coincided with the rise of, I think, a lot of, of the student movement um, and students expressing their own deep de- dissatisfaction with the educational system, which they saw as being mechanized, standardized, and the educational technologies and the practices that that Skinner had sort of touted, Skinner and others had touted, were really seen as dehumanizing. And in order to sort of rehumanize education, they want students wanted to reject this the kind of teaching practices, the theories, and very and quite literally the machinery that they saw as 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 um, as, as dehumanizing them. So, so the moment, a lot of the momentum behind it was lost, but the uh, consequences were still very much there and still very much influencing uh, the development of educational technology. I think so. I think that when you look at the development of the development of computing and the development of educational technology go hand in hand, right? So, you know, universities were, of course, the place in where, you know, computers were, that's where you'd find a computer, um, that's where com- computing was developed, and so while there were there was um, computing computer science, you know, for the sake of the science itself um, at these universities, there was a lot of work um, at in developing ways in which computers could teach, and so and like I said, this much of this was just really a, a furtherance of the kinds of things that that Skinner and others were doing with. They're plastic and wooden wooden devices. So educational educational computing, educational technology, really is this. I think is this um, continuation of the sort of behaviorist technology that Skinner and others had developed earlier in the twentieth century. It's real. I don't think it's it's not as unbroken as we would as we like to tell the story. We we like to say. Whew, Thank goodness the cognitive scientists came along because now we don't do that nasty behaviorism any longer. But I, I think the nasty behaviorism is very much um, is very much part of the foundation of what we continue to build our educational technologies upon. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? 
So I, so if you read the book, when you read the book, the, there's um, Skinner. I don't know why Skinner. I mean, I should put Skinner to rest, bless his heart. But Skinner um, had this other invention, the the air crib. This idea that he could raise his daughter, uh, raise his baby in a crib that was um, better designed for sort of the ideal engineering of an infant. And I was, I've been really fascinated with with this particular device, but also with the kinds of ways in which engineering um, of of children, engineering of infants, um, in the, again in the 20th century. So I'm working on a, a new book on the development of the baby monitor, um, which similarly seems like a, tech, a, a technology that's a contemporary technology, but has its origins in the early 20th century with the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. This idea that children must be monitored. Children must be surveilled. Children are in danger, and they need this sort of technological intervention to protect and save them. So there's a theme in my work. <laughs> well, it sounds like a fascinating book, and I hope that when you uh, when it's published that we can have you uh, back on the show to talk about Definitely. it. Definitely. This has been great. Thank you. Well, thank you. Audrey Waters, uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you.